first off in the fall, we compete at something every day, whether it be in the weight room or skill instruction. In fall practice, obviously, when you have inner squads, you're competing, but we keep track of it. We compete at something every day. It could be in a team aspect. It, like I said, it could be in the weight room one-on-one, and you have to pick sides, but you get a point every time that you win an event, and then the guy at the end of the fall who has the most MJ points will get a Jumpman trophy. Hello and welcome to Ahead of the Curve. I am Jonathan Gellner, and thank you so much for being here. This episode is brought to you by Baseball Cloud. Baseball Cloud's revolutionary software platform brings to life the numbers captured by TrackMan and FlightScope. This provides colleges, players, and facility owners around the world a turnkey product, allowing them to analyze their data using key metrics and custom visualizations on one intuitive user interface. Go to BaseballCloud.com to find out how you can have your own data analytics department for your program. Data has a story to tell, and Baseball Cloud gives it a voice. On today's show, I get the pleasure of interviewing Cliff Godwin, head baseball coach at East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina. A four-year letterman for the Pirates, Godwin was appointed as ECU's 16th skipper in the school's history on June 25, 2014, after completing a three-year stay at the University of Mississippi. During his five years at the helm of the program, Godwin has guided ECU to four NCAA regional berths, two super regional appearances, and the 2019 American Athletic Conference regular season title. He has also had 10 players that have earned All-American status and had 13 drafted in the Major League Baseball draft. Off the field, his teams have excelled in the classroom by registering a 3.05 or higher grade point average in nine of his 10 semesters including a team-best 3.52 in the fall of 2017, which bested the previous mark of 3.42 in the fall of 2015. Under Godwin, a two-time academic All-American selection, his teams have combined to have 240 members on the ECU Director of Athletics Honor Roll. Following the 2019 season, the Pirates earned their fourth straight Team Academic Excellence Award from the American Baseball Coaches Association. On the show, we discuss Coach Godwin's coaching experience, which spans across many collegiate programs, including the University of Notre Dame, Louisiana State University, University of Central Florida, and Ole Miss. But we also talk about practice design, hitting routines, advice for assistant coaches, and how he molds a positive, family-oriented team culture. You're going to love this episode, and here is Cliff Godwin. Coach Godwin, welcome to the show. Jonathan, thanks for having me. Absolutely. I've been a huge fan of yours for a long time, and this is the first time that I've been able to speak to you personally, but I've listened to you on several podcasts, and and as I mentioned just a minute ago, I I love the culture that you are continuing to build every single year, and I I love your your just deliberateness about that being a huge part of your program. But for our listeners who may not have gotten the chance to speak with you or, or to listen to you on anything else or or just don't know a whole lot about you, do you mind starting off with just a short snapshot about why you decided to get into coaching and just uh, where you got to where you are today? Yeah, of course. Uh, I'll try to make it as brief as possible. My, my dad's a high school basketball coach, or he was. He's retired now, so he was a high school basketball coach for 30 years, so I grew up in a coaching family. Uh, my grandfather was a farmer, which, you know, he was a leader of his organization. Mm-hmm. Uh, my high school baseball coach, James Rabbit Fulgham, who's in the North Carolina Sports Hall of Fame, uh, the same one that Michael Jordan is, uh, obviously a big influence in my life. And then Coach Keith McClare, who I played for at East Carolina uh, for four years. Uh, just all guys who were very instrumental in giving to me and making me the man I am in today and the coach I am today. Um, so that's really the reason I got into coaching. And then when I got into coaching, I was able to, to work for first off Ronnie battle, who is not with us anymore, but a high school coach at Kenson high school, who was just an unbelievable man, a guy who always had a smile on his face. And, and I was able to leave from there and work for Mark Scaff, my first collegiate experience as a coach and coach Scaff just retired coach Scaff's one of the the best human beings and best coaches I've ever been around as well. And then 
I go from there and I'm the director of baseball operations for Tim Corbin, a guy who's won two national championships. Awesome. And really that, that year that I was there, um, as director of baseball operations, I probably learned more in that one year than I have in my entire coaching career, just because I was his right hand man. I saw all different sides of what it took for him to develop a program. And he was in his, I think, third year as the head coach at Vanderbilt at that time. So there was a lot of moving pieces from donors to administration to coaching a team. So a lot of different things. And then from there, work with Paul Maneri. Um, coach Maneri hired, hired me when he was the head coach at Notre Dame. We were there for one year and then went to LSU. Coach Maneri was hired as the head coach at LSU and he took us with him and was there for two years. We went to Omaha in 2008. And Coach Maneri, just an unbelievable manager of people and kind of like a CEO of an organization. And when you talk about a lot of moving pieces, there's a lot of moving pieces at LSU. You know, a lot of different people are pulling at you, and you still have to be a great coach and, and manage the other things off the field. From there, I went to UCF and worked with one of my best friends, Terry Rooney. Terry Rooney mm -hmm. got the head coaching job from LSU. We were there for three years. I was associate head coach, recruiting coordinator there. Really wasn't looking to leave. And Mike Bianco came calling. And I'm a kind of a country boy from Eastern North Carolina. And mm -hmm. Oxford, Mississippi is a college town, unlike Orlando, where, you know, there's easy recruiting, but a lot of traffic. So, uh, and then obviously to be able to work, you know, for one of the best in the business, in my opinion, the guy that has the longest tenure in the SEC. So went there and uh, worked for him for three years. We went to Omaha in 2014. I think it's the first time in 42 years for Ole Miss. And then uh, East Carolina had an opening as for the head coaching position. And I interviewed for the position. I'm real thankful that I, I did a good job in an interview on seven at seven thirty in the morning on a Saturday morning before we played on Sunday in Omaha. But uh, you know, the chance to come back and coach and, and be the leader of your alma mater and represent a group of people that I played with that mean more to me than any other people in the world next to my family. So um, just blessed to have had that opportunity and the stars kind of aligned to to have that opportunity and you know been here for you know going into my sixth season. So five seasons under the belt going into the sixth year. And, you know, we've uh, had a lot of success here, but it's, it's not easy. Like you said, it's something you have to work on every single day when you talk about the culture and the recruiting um, to, to East Carolina. So here we are. I love that. And I, I mean, this is a little bit off script, but whenever, whenever most coaches are talking about to young coaches about, getting better as a coach it's always about finding good mentors and i you've got the who's who's list of of guys that you've been able to pull from and give to as well but i mean how important has that was that to your coaching career and how much did that teach you and just if you don't mind just share a couple maybe a couple of things that you learned from those guys well number one i'd like to say this and i think i've said this before on a podcast but i think it's very important for young coaches especially as competitive as our industry is now to, to get good jobs. But I was a volunteer assistant at UNC Wilmington. The East Coast Professional Showcase was at UNCW. Um, that's the top 150 players east of the Mississippi, you know, are, are playing on UNCW's field. So I was a volunteer assistant. So I'm like working on the field. I'm doing laundry for teams. And then I'm running back up and I'm standing next to Eric Backage and trying to figure out, how to evaluate players, you know, for, for college recruiting. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I look like I'm a, you know, a farmhand out there working and dirty and just, you know, you can imagine that look, it was one of the hottest summers you could imagine. So, I mean, I, I'm a mess, but Tim Corbin is, you know, what, as observant as he is, he's watching this basically maniac run around the field, do, you know, field work and then come back and stand next to Eric. So he asks Eric, Hey, who's that guy that's standing next to you? And Eric said, well, that's one of my former teammates, one of my best friends, Cliff Godwin. And Corb said, well, E, do you think he'd want to be our director of baseball operations? And literally a meal later, and that's how I became the director of that's baseball awesome. operations. So you, you never know who's watching. We all as coaches tell our players that, but really that's how I got my foot in the door to, to Vandy. And at the time, the director of baseball operations position was not big. And I really didn't know what I was getting into, but I trusted Eric. And I really believed in Tim Corbin 
And man, what a great decision on my part to go work for, you know, one of the best, best in the business. But like you said, every coach that I worked for from Mark Scaff to Paul Maneri to Terry Rooney to Mike Bianco, all those guys in different ways have molded me into the coach I am today. I don't try to emulate everything that each one do, but you take the pieces that fit into your coaching style. But man, I learned a lot from those guys. And they're some of my best friends as well. And I would do anything in the world for them because they gave me an opportunity to work underneath them. Mm-hmm. Well, and you know, we live in an, in the information age and there's literally nothing in the world that we can't learn with a small thing that sits in our pocket, you know, our, our iPhones. But it, it's another thing to get to see those guys go to work every single day. And, and I think that's where, you know, we, we think we have a handle of how good those guys are and, until you're in it and you're watching those guys every day. And I, I think that's where the excellence lies. And and I'm sure it would be the same thing if we got to watch you every single day. It, we're we're getting a 40-minute to 60-minute snapshot of, of what you do. But that's not, I mean, that's that's just some of the highlights that take apart your daily routines and, and what you guys are setting up for your players. But so you get, so you get hired at, at ECU. And what was the vision like for you when you first started? And just what were some of your first steps? And, and take in mind, we have a, a probably a ton of coaches listening, and this is their first month on the job, and and they're they're really searching for some different things that that they want to implement first, or at least to have a process of how to implement all of what they want to do. So, what did that look like for you? And just kind of take us through what what uh, what your vision was and and what you did first. Well, my vision was very ambitious. You know, I I don't think that you can set goals too high. I talk to our players all the time about if you're not setting your goals high enough and you're not falling a little bit short, then your, your goals are not high enough or not excellent enough. I mean, look, we've been to two super regionals in the past five years and uh, it hurts when you lose that late in the season, but there's only a select few teams that get to hurt like that. And we invest a lot, so it should hurt, but we came in right away as a staff and, we wanted to set our expectations high. Look, I mean, our goal here is from day one is to win a national championship. We want our guys to graduate from ECU and win a national championship. I mean, those are the top two on the list. There's a few other goals that are underneath there from hosting a super regional, hosting a regional, winning the American athletic conference each year, winning for 40 plus games. And then at the very bottom, it's get 1% better so that you can, you know, touch that every day. And then at the top, is graduate from ECU because that's the farthest away. Uh, but we set our goals high. And just like Coach LeClaire did when he came in as the coach at East Carolina, I had redshirted my freshman year under Coach Gary Overton. And he comes in and he talks about taking ECU baseball and playing in the College World Series. Up until that point, I had no idea ECU could even go play in the College World Series. Just that was not on the radar of what we had been taught. So I was fired up that we had an opportunity to do that. And Look, we've said that from day one, but, you know, we set our first goal. Pretty interesting story, Jonathan. The GPA for athletic programs at East Carolina when we had first taken the job had only been on record for seven previous years. Well, when we first got here, ECU baseball had never had a 3.0 team GPA. So that first fall, as a coaching staff, we were like, we're going to get a 3.0 team GPA. So that first fall, we got a 3.05. Coach Palumbo, myself, the other coaches, you know, we're high five and we're jacked up. The next spring, we got a little bit under a 3-0. Then the next fall, the second fall, we got a 3-4-1. The next spring, it was a 3-2-1. So we we're like, man, we got to raise our expectations because we have, you know, overshot the 3.0 goal. So now our goal is to get a 3.25 team GPA, and we have not had below a 3.4 team GPA in the past two years. How about that? Yeah, but that's where you have standards and expectations and you talk about it. And, um, you know, you can get your players to do anything. You just can't get them to do everything. So whatever you want them to focus on, talk about it and they'll get better at it. Oh, I love that. And and that's something that it's it's something that I've been working on personally. And, you know, you you hit the nail on the head when you said we can get them to do everything, but we, we or we can get them to do anything, but we don't want them to do everything. And and that's something that we see a lot of people's highlights on social media. We we get to listen to a podcast like this, and we want to implement everything that you are doing. 
But I also thought it was really interesting that you made the point earlier that you take what you can and you use what fits you. And and I think that's something that most young coaches struggle with a little bit. And I think a lot of coaches do too, because you see the stuff with bells and whistles and you really want to implement that. And it's it's always a good conversation to have within the coaching staff of what do we want? Like, what are our core values? What do we want? And and so while we're talking about that, let's go ahead and and get into this upcoming fall and while the listeners are listening to this, they're probably getting started on their fall. So what does this fall look like for you? And just kind of go through a typical week of, of what, what you guys are going to be doing with, with your players. So on a typical week, so can we, have, we have five weeks before we start official team practice. So for those five weeks, we call it like spring training. So we're going to lift condition pretty hard for four days uh, a week. And then we're going to have individual skill instruction or fundamental team session for those uh, for five days a week for those five weeks. So it's really like spring training. We're getting the pitcher's arms up, throwing program, and be able to scrimmage on September 27th. So we start our first official team practice on the 26th, and then we'll scrimmage the 27th, 28th, 29th of September, and we'll go for about five weeks of fall practice. Um, so within the fall practice, uh, we'll practice five days a week, scrimmage, you know, three of those days. Uh, position players will lift three days a week, and then the pitchers will lift around their throwing. So, you know, if it's a Friday group that's throwing in a scrimmage, they'll lift on Saturday, Sunday, and then they have an option for a third lift after their bullpen or a yoga session. So that's pretty much like spring ball, except you're just not playing outside competition every weekend. And this year we're able to play two fall games. So we're playing at UVA this fall and then Liberty's coming to us. So we'll have two uh, fall games and then we'll finish up with the purple gold world series the first weekend in November. And we have about two and a half, three weeks of individual skill instruction, get back in the weight room. You know, that's really kind of fine tuning thing. We want to work with a pitcher or position player with their swing or their mechanics for those next two and a half weeks and then obviously the pitchers will shut down at some point in time um, so they'll be ready to get back rolling at the end of December. No and it's not a lot of time to make a ton of different changes and, and that's something that we haven't it seems like a lot but when you when you boil it down to the time restrictions that I'm currently on it's an hour a day for the entire fall and and there's so much stuff that you that you want to get in and how have you found that balance of okay, this is the stuff that we have to get in. This is the things that they have to know by the time that we get them full-time in in December or January or whenever the coaches are listening. But what, you know, what, how, how did you, how did that process look like for you? And do you kind of curtail it to what your team is really good at versus what they're not? Or is it something that you have a similar template every single year and then you just curtail it to each individual? We have a similar you know, program every single year. We want to give our players to have as many, I call it bullets in their gun that they can have. So really from the fundamental side is what I'm talking about. So we want to make sure that they're fundamentally sound bunting, fundamentally sound hitting, fundamentally sound fielding, fundamentally sound base running. And then for the pitchers, obviously they have a great throwing routine, uh, a day-to-day routine, and then a weekly plan. Um, the arm care program, also good lifting conditioning program to keep them strong throughout the entire year. And then just communication with the pitching coach and myself and our trainer and our strength coach of what works and what doesn't. So then we're ready to rock and roll in the fall. To be honest with you, we don't spend a lot of time on first and third defense, first and third offense, even bunt defense and stuff like that in the fall, because I just want to make sure our team's fundamentally sound Mm -hmm. um, going into the spring. Well, and then once you, I feel, and this is just me, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like once you, once you get into the team setting, that's when, that's when all of that stuff, you're going to do all of that stuff anyways. And hopefully you're building the better baseball player in the fall and then you're building a better team in the spring. And and I I don't know if that's different than what you're thinking, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. No, I, I would agree. I think, you know, you, you want to make sure that you have your individuals prepared for whatever situation they're thrown into in the spring. And look, you're playing a lot in the fall, you know, mm-hmm. you're playing yourself a lot, but you're kind of getting to see what guys can do and what guys can't do. And like you said, what your strengths are going to be, what your weaknesses may be. But I think it's a, 
like you said, it's uh, it's you have to see what your team's kind of made of, and then the spring you can kind of, you know, I guess maneuver into the type of team you're going to be with the strengths because every team's different. You know, every offense is different, mm-hmm. every pitching staff's different, and you have to, in my opinion, make adjustments to the type of team. Like we were really good at bunting last year. We were really bad at hitting and running, which like kills me because I like to hit and run, mm-hmm. and I don't necessarily. When I say I don't like to bunt, I don't like to sacrifice bunt um, as much. We like to bunt for hits um, more, which we were pretty good at that last year. Um, but we led the nation in sacrifice bunts, which if you had told me that Cliff Godwin, a head coach, that his team would lead the nation in sack bunts, I'd tell you you're crazy. But <laughs> it worked for us last year. Sure. Uh, that's that's just master coach of understanding the players and what they do well and just trying to maximize their potential. And, and I really like that. I, I think that that's something that, we can all do a better job of is just understanding the feel for the team. And, and I, a lot of that comes with experience, knowledge, but a lot of it comes with knowing them and getting to see them on a daily basis. But as far as culture building, I know that, the, that this is a huge part of, of ECU and, and what you guys are trying to do and, and just the environment that you're having them come into every single day. So how did that process look like on you? You told us the vision. Now, how did you go about on a daily basis or, even just on a yearly basis of how to implement those things. And, you know, what, what is, if, if we were immersed in your culture, what would we see? What would we feel? And just kind of give us all the details behind that, if you don't mind. So before I was hired, uh, I actually, you know, worked with Brian Kane for three years at Ole Miss and um, we were just talking and, you know, I was like, Hey, look, I want to have a foundation of what our program's about. So it's the pirates acronym. So if you go back and look at my first press conference, I actually talk about it. Now it's evolved into a much deeper level than just these words, but uh, just for a brief synopsis, P is purpose. We want to have a plan for everything we do and a reason why we do it. Um, And none of this stuff is just for baseball. That's for academics. That's from the mental side of things, strength conditioning, uh, arm care, whatever. We want to have a plan for everything we do and a reason why we do it. I is integrity. Uh, True integrity is doing what is right even when no one is watching. R is responsible. You have the power to choose your response in any situation, nobody else. We talk about that a lot on the field and how we react to umpires or how we react to lining out. Um, kind of, We want to focus on things that we can control. A is attitude. Um, I like energy givers. Every newcomer listens or reads the energy bus before they start the fall semester. Um, that's big for me. Uh, T is toughness, the ability to embrace adversity and keep moving forward. In my opinion, baseball teaches you more about life than any other sport because it's a game of failure. And it's not just on the offensive side. It's on the mound as well. I mean, you can throw a pitch exactly where you want to throw it down in a way. and Bryce Harper can hit it out the other way. So you have to learn how to, you know, get punched and get back up on a, on a consistent basis. E is excellence. We want to pursue a lifestyle to be great. And then the last one, which is probably the toughest one in this day and age, is S is selfless. Put we over me and execute your role for the team, not necessarily accept it. And what that means is, look, every pitcher that comes into our program, everybody wants to be a Friday night starter. At least mm-hmm. I hope they do, because that's uh, you know one of the highest roles you can have. But if you come in as a freshman and you're a midweek starter, that's a pretty daggone big role on our team. In the middle of the week, we're playing North Carolina, Duke, UNC Wilmington, Campbell, you know, Elon, so you're pitching and get some of the best programs in the country in the other week. So that's a big role. Well, we want you to, you know, execute that role and be the best midweek starter in the entire country. But on the other end, when you get done with that start, work your tail off to be that Friday night starter still. And at worst case scenario, you make everybody in front of you better. And if somebody slips up then all of a sudden you're pitching on Sunday, somebody slips up again, you're pitching on Saturday. I mean, perfect example was Alec Burleson, his freshman year. Uh, he started out at the back end of the bullpen, and then next thing you know, he ended up being our Saturday starter and was freshman pitcher of the year in our conference two years ago. Um, and that's just because he kept working and had his appendix taken out in the middle of the season, and, and that slowed him down a little bit, but he just got back in there and kept working. And end of the day, he ended up being our Saturday starter and freshman pitcher of the year. Well, and something that I think that a lot of coaches can do a better job of and when I say a lot of coaches, I definitely mean myself. And that's that communication piece that you want them to put the team first. 
But at the end of the day, you know, Coach Godwin, you you want to be the best coach in the world. And, you know, it, whenever you're an assistant and you're thinking about that down the road, you have these aspirations of being a head coach someday. And and the same thing is for our players. They want to be that Friday night guy. And you don't want them to be satisfied with being a midweek guy. So what do those conversations look like if, if you can definitely tell some frustration or if, if I mean, for the, for the most part, I, I think that uh, myself as, as a coach in the past would just change the lineup and then I would put different people in different, a different order or uh, I would take innings away. And, and all of that came without a conversation about why. And I think that that's something that that I'm definitely working on this year of not not necessarily in game telling them why, but just whenever we're during practice, just or maybe before the game, just say, hey, we're going to move you down in the lineup to hopefully get you some more fastballs and and get you going. I, I it's nothing that that you're doing wrong. I see you working and just things like that, just to give them a little bit of of hope or uh, that we haven't given up on them. And I'd love to hear. Are you are you focusing on that communication piece with within that and and just making sure that that they are continuing to strive for for excellence and that's why you recruited them and and just how did that how do you go about that? Well, one of my first uh, meetings with the kids and the parents, the incoming guys, every year I talk about up until this point I have not made a decision that will negatively impact your son, but in the next year I'm going to. And what I mean by that is. Somebody's going to pitch on Friday night. Somebody's going to pitch on Saturday. Somebody's going to hit in the three hole. So, yes, we have a ton of conversations with our players. And most of the time it's me having them because I'm so involved with our players. I mean, that's one of the things that it was the biggest thing I had to make an adjustment becoming a head coach from an assistant. Had great relationships as an assistant, but now you have to throw the pitchers into it. So you just got more players. And you talk about what your role is and, hey, you were hitting leadoff, but we're going to put you in the nine hole because, look, we need to put somebody up there that's just getting on base more right now. Or, hey, I know you were pitching on Friday, but we need to, you know, flip you to Sunday. And uh, and you just, look, they're not easy conversations, but you have to have them on the front end, in my opinion, instead of the back end, because then the kids are just always kind of guessing. And I would like to think kids in our programs – kids in our program always know where they stand as far as where they stand kind of on a depth chart. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other side of it is I tell all of our team, it doesn't matter if you're the Friday night starter or you're the bullpen catcher, everybody's role is just as important. Mm-hmm. When I talk about our student managers in front of our team in the first uh, meeting, and I got this from coach Bianco, but Hey, look, uh, we can go find another guy that throws 90, but we can't go find, you know, three guys that are willing to basically volunteer their time to be up here before you are, to stay after you're up here, to do laundry, to do field work, to make your life as easy as possible. So if you ever disrespect them, then we'll have an issue because those guys are a selfless group of guys that you could have as part of your organization. And when I meet with the manager, I tell them, hey, look, you set the field up right, you do the laundry right, you're making me a better coach because then I don't have to worry about it then I'm going to be able to spend my time on actually coaching baseball and not worrying about that stuff, which is in reality, help us win more baseball games, which is in turn going to help us win a national championship. So you're a part of something much bigger than just setting up the field. No, I love that. And, and everybody plays their role. And Bill Walsh talks about that in his book. And he talks just about how, he, and I don't know how, how in the world he did this with such a large organization, but talked about everybody's jobs and, and the culture that he wanted to build there. And very similar to, to what you're you are successfully setting up there and and I really like that personal development piece with your players because I, I think that the more that we communicate to them in the correct not only just time but tone and and just to understand that we're there for them the more that they're going to play hard for us and and I I know that that you've mentioned that several different times and and I love that that aspect of it but I also want to know you know what are you, what are you guys doing for competition and I the reason I ask this, I you know, com- competition can be somewhat innate, but it can also be a learned skill, I think. And it's kind of like, which came first, the chicken or the egg, or, you know, and there's some guys that are naturally competitive and there's some guys that you learn that are very competitive in, in different uh, venues. But what are you guys doing for some different competitions that I could steal from you? Well, first off, in the fall, we compete at something every day, whether it be in the weight room or skill instruction, 
in fall practice, obviously, when you have inner squads, you're competing, but we keep track of it. So we call it the MJ Award. So in my growing up days, Michael Jordan was the best competitor. You can argue about the NBA's greatest, whatever, but in my opinion, the best competitor, Michael Jordan. So we compete at something every day. It could be in a team aspect. It, like I said, it could be in the weight room one-on-one and you have to pick sides, but you get a point every time that you win an event. And then the guy at the end of the fall who has the most MJ points will get a Jumpman trophy at the end of the fall. Um, the other things we can compete at is we give out least runs given up by pitcher, not earned runs, least runs, because at the end of the day, you'll have to pitch around errors. Um, and then for position players, quality at bat, the highest quality quality at bat percentage at the end of the fall. So those are the three things that we, you know, we track and mm-hmm. we're going to give out awards, but our guys know that when they show up, they're competing every day, but we do keep track of that EMJ award. Like I was talking about. Coaches, your players aren't afraid to work hard. They just can't afford to get it wrong. And that is why you should attend the 2019 Skill Acquisition Summit hosted by Randy Sullivan's Florida Baseball Ranch and the Strength of Skills from the Netherlands. This annual event will take place on October 12th and the 13th in Lakeland, Florida. This event will have a premier panel of presenters including Franz Bosch from the Netherlands and Rob Gray from Arizona State University. The most forward-thinking coaches in the business will funnel the information down to the bare bones of on-the-field application of leading-edge skill acquisition and motor learning science. You will leave equipped to help your players optimize the return on their training time. For more information, call 1-866-STRIKE-3 or go to floridabaseballranch.com backslash summit. Presenters include Franz Bosch, Rob Gray, Martin Nyhoff, Bart Honegroff, David Mann, Paul Venner, Ron Wolforth, and Coach Randy Sullivan, who will serve as host and moderator for this exciting event. I will be in attendance, and I hope to see you there. No, that, that's really, really good. And, and uh, obviously, being a North Carolina guy, you got to love, love MJ. But I, I also, so you were a uh, director of baseball operations, and you were an assistant coach for some really, really good coaches. And, and something that, that you know, it, it, for the head coaches that are listening or people who want to be head coaches someday, we want to, uh, this is my opinion, you want to hire guys that want to be head coaches someday. You want them to own their role and you want them to strive to get better every single day. But I also understand that they also need to be developed as well. And and there's only a, a certain amount of coaches that are consistently going to uh, develop or just clinics and listening to podcasts and reading books consistently. But I also think that there is a lot of time that we could spend making sure that they're not only developing their area of expertise within the coaching staff, but also you you want to prepare them for that moment where they become a head coach. And I've talked to several different coaches, and and I know our, our football coach here at Union does a fantastic job of of his, his coaching tree is is phenomenal, and and he does a great job of just making sure that he takes the moments of okay, if you're ever a head coach, this is a situation that you would have to deal with, or if it, just remember this if you're a head coach someday, and and thinking about things like that, and and I I think that just being conscious of things like that re- is really helpful. But I'd also like to hear your take on, you know, how are you developing your coaches someday or to someday be head coaches or just helping them to own their area of expertise within the coaching staff? Well, a couple things. Number number one, two things that I would tell every first-year head coach that really helped me. Mm-hmm. Um, number one, when you go into a situation, regardless if it was bad before or it was great before, accept all the players tell them that they're your players and go with it. Now, there really might good. be some that don't, don't uh, you know, agree with the standards that you have brought or the vision that you've brought, but mm-hmm. at the end of the day, they're your players when you show up. So treat them as your players, because if you don't, you have no chance of winning that first year. And I really believe that's why we were able to win our first year. And I joke with our coaching staff um, a lot about, even when we won a national championship, the, the best coaching job we ever did was our first year at East Carolina, just because we won 40 games. We won 
an AEC tournament championship, and, and we weren't very talented. And that's no disrespect to the players that were in our program, because if I could give one great, I guess, uh, accolade, in my opinion, is tough, blue-collar, did whatever it took, and that group you know, was a thin group, but, man, they would just compete and were tough every single day. The, the second thing is, I would say, for first-year head coaches is set your standards and, and your vision very high to start with. Even though it might not happen that first year, whatever you set your standards, then it's all, you can always drop them a little bit, but it's mm-hmm. tough to, to keep you know, adding on to those standards after your first year. Um, as far as developing our guys within our coaching organization, is we I just communicate a lot. I mean, I think that's vital. And, but they know a lot of what's going on, whether it be recruiting or uh, fundraising, you know, any kind of, you know, maybe a, a discipline situation, practice organization. I mean, look, we, we meet every single day when we have practice because that's the most important part of my day if we're practicing because I want to make sure that the kids are getting out what they need to get out of it in a very – efficient amount of time so those are the ways that i would say that you know i try to help our guys within our coaching organization well and not knowing you real well on a personal basis but getting to see the different things that you do i i do understand that you are setting that example of a learner for them and i i think that that plus the communication piece that you talked about is just huge for guys that are working for you because you know there there are coaches out there that aren't very good communicators within the coaching staff. And, and I, I'm sure we've all worked for somebody who, you know, you show up and you don't necessarily know what you're doing that day a, a ton. And, and just having a guy that, that communicates a, a, exactly what he, you are expected to do for him and with him, I, I think that's huge because that frees them up, your assistant coaches and just assistant coaches in general, that frees them up a ton to be able to do their job and do their job well and get creative. And, you know, once you know exactly what's expected, you know how efficiently things can run. And, and I really like that piece. And no, it's, I, I think that for an assistant coach, and, and I might not be a Division One assistant coach, but as an assistant coach, I think that's huge. Yeah, I mean, look, I was an assistant coach for a long time before I became a head coach. And, and I think that has helped me be a head coach and manage our assistant coaches. You know, the, the one thing that coach laugh, you know, he told me after the fact we were having a conversation, coach Lafferty at Ole Miss who's one of my best friends. I'm the godfather of his children. He said, I was always worried because you've never been married, how you would treat your assistants um, with their families. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you here today that none of our assistants have ever asked me to do something that involved their family. And I'd ever said no, even if it was going to, you know, affect us maybe in a small negative way. In my opinion, I've never said no. If somebody had to go to, you know, a first grade graduation or a dance recital or whatever, I've always said yes, because at the end of the day, I I want them to be able to share those moments with their children and their families. And we try to include their families into as much stuff as, we can, you know, just with us hiring the new pitching coach. I mean, Jeff Palumbo and his wife went out to dinner with the pitching coach candidates and their wives because I want them to, you know, be able to give me some input on what their thoughts are and, you know, some ownership in the decision that we made and hiring a new pitching coach, which is Jason Dietrich, and we're fired up about him. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, I think it's important just to have your assistants feel like this is a family atmosphere. Well, and, you know, for again, I'm going to use our head football coach as, as an example, and he's got uh, two boys, and and he is one of the first ones to be able to do that. And so for us, you know, whenever you're sitting around the office and, and your head coach goes, he tells you that, but he also does that. I, For for me, uh, that was always something that, <laughs> because especially in the football office, you look around and you're, you see guys that are, that are not necessarily getting a ton of work in and you're like, well, I don't, I don't know if I should leave or, and then you see right. your head coach be able to do that. And, and I, I think that's huge. And, you know, having a young son, I, I didn't realize that how important that aspect of, of that was. And obviously you'd be an awesome guy to work for just because those, I mean, your assistants and, and just coaches in general spend so much time at the field and more time with other people's kids than our own kids. And, and that I think is, is huge. 
Well, and and look, they they can't ask to miss something like this in the middle of a game or something. I want to make sure, <laughs> right, but, exactly. But within within reason, you sure. know, like if it's office time and you know, or if they need to meet miss a meeting or something, like yeah, absolutely, I want you know Jeff to be able to go watch Grayson play, you know, his soccer game as much as he can because look, at the end of the day, every coach is making sacrifices from his family because of the amount of time we spend up here, you know, at the baseball field. Mm-hmm. Well, I love that. And and you've talked about some personal development with your players and your coaches. And let's go ahead and jump right into the spring and talk about efficiency and practice design. And you know, I, I this is the aspect that I love because I, I feel like there's not a whole lot that we can control as far as them learning at different levels. I, I think that we can set up different situations for them to understand and to uh, to work efficiently through that. And I, I think that, that uh, a big part of that uh, comes through us because we have them for three or four years. And, you know, if we are efficient in every single rep and in most days, I, I would like to say every day, but at least in most days, then they're going to get a little bit better than the competition, the more efficiently that we can set up for them. So tell us a, a little bit about, you know, what your typical practice plan would look like and how much time that, that you're spending on what. And if you want to give us just a skeleton, then that would be fine. But Mainly, I, I just want to know, how, how have you guys found to be efficient? You talked about your coaches meeting every single day, and I think that that would be a huge benefit to uh, programs everywhere. But just kind of walk us through what you do and why you do it. Well, I would think the biggest thing, we talk about being efficient, that coaches meeting, you know, maybe last 15 to 30 minutes, but it's very detailed. And I still do the practice plan in communication with our pitching coach. And mm-hmm. so we'll map it out and, and I'll communicate with coach Palumbo, what we want to do base running wise and, and so forth. But it's very detailed and it, it's going to flow and it's going to be quick paced. I mean, literally we, we probably never practice more than two and a half hours unless we're scrimmaging on a single day, just because with the attention span you're dealing with now, I think you, you can't spend so much time, you know, you can't go take 30 minutes and talk about blunt defense. I just think that's a waste of time because the kids are going to lose focus. And instead of doing bunt defense for three days in a row and spend 10 minutes on it each day, I think the kids get more out of it. But a couple things, and I won't go through like a, a entire practice, but the early hitting routine that we incorporate with our guys, basically uh, it doesn't have to be our routine. It just needs to be a routine. So it's fungo swings, T-work, front toss every single day before they stretch or throw. And it's just getting each individual kid to be able to repeat their same exact swing, no matter where the pitch is. So they do that for 15 minutes a day, but they do it however many days, 200 days out of the year. If they play summer ball, maybe it's 300 days out of the year. So it's the compound effect of just getting 1% better each day and being able to repeat your swing. Um, so they never see a ball thrown overhand or a pitching machine ball until they, until they do that mm-hmm. um, each and every day. Um, we're always going to have a base running component. We're always going to have bunting with our early hitting routine, which are just the fundamentals that you need. Um, we're always going to have individual defense, and it could be 15 minutes one day. It could be 30 minutes in the next. But, you know, where I have the catchers, Coach Palumbo has the infielders, Coach Allen has the outfielders. We're always going to do that. Normally, there's a BP in there, and then there is, you know, team stuff, whether it be first and third defense, bunt defense, pickoffs, whatever it may be. But like I said, we're in and out of there in two and a half hours, um, and then normally we're lifting after practice for an hour. So okay. that's kind of a typical practice day for us. No doubt, no doubt. And it's, you know, not knowing you real well is you, you talked about the short game a little bit with the bunting side. And I think that base running goes neglected. Is that why you guys hit it every single day? Well, it's it's a lost art because, and, and this is no offense, but just people don't coach it as much, and kids are playing more, but they're not taught the game as much. So, in my opinion, bunting, base running are the two lost arts in our game. When we get kids now, those are the biggest things that we have to teach them. Um, and defense too. I mean, defense could fall in there because all they do is go in and you know, hit in the cage and watch active velocity and go play on a travel team. And they don't really know how to be a baseball player. So just for an example, Burleson, Brickhouse, and Packard, three of the best left-handed hitters in the country last year, you could shift them if you wanted to, but they all could drag bunt. So mm-hmm. 
you at least you'd have to make an option of saying, okay, we don't care that they're going to be standing at first base, but we're playing Elon midweek game, Packers leading off, big time shift, um, left-handed pitcher, ended up being a weekend guy for Elon. Uh, first pitch of the game is a single because Packer drag bunts, and we got three runs that inning, and I really believe because it rattled the pitcher because he couldn't believe that Bryant Packer drag butted on the first pitch. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that. And, you know, I'm, I, I, there are some great base running guys, Mike Roberts and Matt Tallarico come to mind. And, and so we're always thinking about the, the different aspects of it. And I don't think it's just stealing bases that we're, when we're talking about base running is, I mean, that's obviously an added bonus, but so you get your players and I, I just want to know what are some things that you, you are very, that you have to teach them that you thought that they should already know? Cause a couple of things that, that come to mind for me is just, you know, where are your outfielders? Like that's something that, that you, or, you know, so get the sign. Uh, what's the situation? Uh, how many outs and where are your outfielders or are some different things that we talk to them about knowing with each base, but what are some different things that, that you make sure that you hit with them? Because it is definitely fundamental to the process. Well, you'd be amazed. I mean, just simple stuff in my opinion of, you know, I, one of the biggest things I was amazed at, and I can't remember what year it was, but just kids not, knowing the difference between what you do at second base with no outs and one out, Mm -hmm. like never been taught, Hey, that there's a difference that what you do with the ball hit to the outfield with no outs versus one out, um, primary leads, secondary lead. uh, We, we break it down. I mean, it goes back to stuff that I learned in high school because I just don't think now there's some great high school programs. So I'm not, I'm not stereotyping everybody, but Basically, we want to break it down and make sure that we don't assume anything. And then we look up and go, oh, my God, this kid has is not getting a secondary lead the right mm-hmm. way or it's not getting a primary lead the right way. So we break it down to the, I mean, back to the bare minimum of base running. Oh, that's really good. And uh, assume they know nothing is, is something that I think that all of our coaches can can uh, can take from and, and take that advice. and. So what is your, you talked about your, your hitting routines before practice, but what does your BP setup look like? BP setup looks like we have four groups. So you'll have a group that's hitting on the field. Um, even with the group on the field, there is, you know, four or five guys in, in that group. And so you'll have the one that you're hitting and then you'll come out and you'll do a release, which is basically a red light release where it's part of the mental game. So you swing a change up in the dirt, you're pissed off. How do I get back into green light? So you'll do that there. Then you'll have bunts, then you'll have ball strike, and then you'll have your green light routine, which is basically what you do uh, in between pitches and you're timing up the pitcher that's throwing BP, and then you hop in and do that. So that's the, the group that's live on the field. You'll have a defensive station. You'll have a base running station. You'll have a cage station. In the cages, it could be you know game ground off velo. It could be right in a breaking ball, bunt, one hit, one, different things on different days. Perfect, perfect. I always like to to get a peek in, into uh, what other people do for BP, just because again we want to make it as efficient as possible, and and there are always some different nuggets that you can take from everybody. And so you you had to hire a, a so or you have to hire somebody new every year, I'm assuming, or or every couple years. And uh, what what does that interview process look like? And I guess what I'm trying to say is what how do you understand without knowing the the guy completely and seeing them work every day, which I'm sure there are some guys that you hire that you're able to do that. How do you get to who that authentic person is? Because there are some guys who are great interviewers. Uh, there are some guys who who maybe are really good at interviews that don't fit exactly what you're looking for. And just what does that inter- interview process look like? I'm sure you vet them and, and you call their uh, just people references and and different things like that. But what, what does that look like? Are there any questions that you ask that are specific to, you know, depending on how they answer this or that is, is maybe not make or break, but you're really trying to get to how, the, how to who that authentic person is and to who they are as a coach. So just give us a, a look in, into that, if you don't mind. Well, I'm very lucky now that in the age of my career that there's a bunch of guys in the profession that I really trust. And Coach Mack at UVA coached me at East Carolina. Scott Jackson, the head coach at Liberty, is somebody that I worked with at UNC Wilmington. Eric Backage, who I played with. Nick Schnabel, who I played with both at Michigan. Carl Lafferty at Ole Miss. 
um, Bryant Ward at UCLA, um, and there's others, Terry Rooney at Houston. I mean, there's a, a, a group of people that I can call and I know that I can trust their word because they would jump out in front of a car in front of for to save my life. And I was really lucky in this process that the three pitching coaches that I brought on campus all had a connection to one of those people that I just mentioned. And I didn't bring anybody on campus that did not have a connection to a person that That's I trust awesome. with my life. And everybody can't say that. So, you know, as far as the specific questions, um, you know, like I, I I kind of paint a pretty dim, uh, grim picture, just like I do with student managers, okay. um, that, hey, we work a lot. Um, hey, we're blue collar. Look, if I ask you to do anything, would you be willing to do it? Um, Coach Maneri was like, hey, if I need you to drag the field with a hand rake, you know, when I interviewed at Notre Dame, would you be willing to do it? Yeah, absolutely. Take out the trash. Yeah. If I have to clean a toilet because we got to recruit, would you do it? Yeah, absolutely. So, when I say, I just want them to say, hey, we, we'll do whatever it takes. And I think people who are personally invested, when I say personally invested, where, look, as a hitting coach at Ole Miss, Coach Bianco would be like, why are you taking it personal? And I look at him and I go, because it's my area. I'm taking it personal because it's my area. Sure. And I don't want to let you down. And I feel like I didn't equip our hitters with what they needed to be successful today. So I do take it personal. Um, and I think if people take it personal, as crazy as it sounds, they're going to be a great coach because they'll figure out what they need to do to, to make it work. And, um, you know, that's the thing that I've been lucky enough to, to the guys that have worked for me, they do take it personal. I mean, Jeff Palumbo takes it personal when we lose a recruit, you know, it doesn't happen as much today as it did five years ago, but he still takes it personal because, you know, he's responsible for that area and we all do because we all have our hands in it but um those are just some of the things and the thing i would tell any assistant coach that is trying to you know better themselves in a situation when you're in this whatever situation you're in and i think this is vital and i think it's tough for some people to do this put blinders on and go to work Mm -hmm. That's what I did as an assistant coach. And look, I was able to move up fast. That's not going to happen for everybody. You know, really, for me, it was probably the fast track. But I made $8,000 my first year at UNC Wilmington. I made twelve five at Vandy. So, you know, I make a lot more money today, but that's almost 20 years later. So I think it's about 18 years later. Um, so it's a process. And, and one quote I tell our players all the time, Hard work guarantees you success, but it don't guarantee you success tomorrow. Mm-hmm. It don't guarantee you success six months from now. I don't guarantee success a year from now. And that's scary as hell to a lot of people, even myself, you know, who I'm preaching this. But I look back on my playing days at East Carolina. I redshirted my freshman year. I was an all-conference player. My fifth year, my senior year, I was an all-conference player. So, hey, it takes time. But if you continue to work hard and stay consistent in your work ethic, you will have success. I just don't know when it's going to be. I love that. And, and I think that's a that's a mic drop moment. But I do have a t- uh, several questions for you, lightning style, before you get started, even though that would that is a, a great quote and, and something that no matter what business you're in, that I, I think that that's obviously that's applicable. And, you know, we talked about my first question was, how, what was your advice for first year head coaches or assistant coaches be? But I, we've hit on that quite a bit. So I want to know, what's something that you've learned lately that's gotten you really excited? Something I've learned lately that's gotten me really excited. I will be honest with you. I, I obviously learned. I like rereading books that I've already read that I really like. So I'm just going to give you a few. And I know this is a question later. But The Energy okay. Bus by John Gore. The Energy Just Energy Bus by John Gore, one of my favorite books. I reread it almost once a year. Can't Hurt Me by David Goggins. Uh, I got that this year, and I've listened to it about four times. Um, but I like to, because it goes back, in my opinion, you can do you know, anything. You can't do everything. So I like to harp on the strengths that I feel like are my strengths and make myself better, which inevitably is going to make our team better. So that's what I do. But some people like to take a lot of different uh, books and keep reading, and, and, and I do. I mean, I'll mix a new one in there, but – at the end of the day, I like to stay true to who I am and the books that I like. I love that. And and I think that John Gordon is, for those who don't like to read, haven't read John Gordon for sure. What's something that you guys do in practice that your players love? 
I would say scrimmage is pretty competitive. We split them up in dugouts and, you know, we practice hard. So that's kind of like the recess for them is to, to scrimmage each other. So I would say scrimmaging each other and being able to compete, you know, something we talked about earlier, but scrimmaging and then, you know, to have a little, be able to talk some trash if they win. So I think they have a good time with that. No doubt. Players love to compete. And so sitting up those situations and practices is vital uh, next question would be, what is something that you believe that other coaches may disagree with you about? Wow, that's a good one. Um, for me, is and I've changed. Yeah, for me, it's changed over time. But if you develop the people within your organization, and we're talking about mainly players here, that you'll get the most of them, and they'll execute the drill that maybe is the best drill, or maybe it's not, but they'll execute it to the highest level. So in my opinion, you have to get the players right on the inside before you can worry about the baseball stuff. And I mean, we meet once a week as a team and go over leadership and just personal development, because at the end of the day, it's going to help them on the baseball field, but it's going to help them a lot longer in life. And when guys leave our program, I wanted to make sure that they're ready for society. If professional baseball is not in the cards. Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, if we came to one of your practices, what would be three things that would stand out or you think that we would notice? Well, at least I would hope that you would notice attention to detail, the speed of transitions within practice and energy, you know, those will be the things I would say that if you didn't, I would hope you come watch practice and then come tap me on the shoulder and go, hey, Coach Guy, when I heard you say this on the podcast, and I just want to let you know that your energy wasn't very good today. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I like that a lot. And uh, the, finally, you've mentioned the John Gordon books, but are there any other favorite books or resources or clinics or just anything that for those wanting to to continue their learning and continue their coach education, where would you send them? So I mentioned the energy bus, also the no complaining rule by John Gordon, uh, the compound effect by Darren Hardy. Uh, I mentioned can't hurt me by David Goggins and uh, above the line by Urban Meyer. There's a few to start and, you know, all of them have great different qualities of each book. So I, I like all of them. Sure. And, you know, I just on that same subject that is, I, I loved Urban's book, and and I, I know that that there are people who have mixed reviews about him as a person, but I think that 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 book is a really good outline of of building the entire person and, and the system that he used to be successful, really wherever he was at. But there's also a podcast that he is on. I I don't know if you're familiar with Focus Three or not, but uh, Focus Three was. Uh, what, what, and Brian, Tim and Brian Kite were the guys that helped him develop that system of, of, of above the line and, and some different things that, that they're doing. And, and Urban and uh, Tim are on a podcast together called Focus 3, and they, they've started to do a weekly podcast about some of the different things that Urban did. And I think that there's a lot of stuff that's really helpful with that. So I don't know, I don't know if you listen to that or not, but since you brought it up, I wanted to throw that out there because that's, that's a resource that I've really enjoyed lately as well. And and I love getting to hear those guys talk about that. Well, I appreciate you letting, I just wrote it down. So oh, I appreciate perfect. you letting me know. And, and no, I, I don't agree with everything that Urban Meyer, you know, maybe has done or mm -hmm. even everything in any book I read. But sure. I think when, anytime you read something, it at least opens your mind to go, no, this is why I think this way. Mm -hmm. You know, when you go to coaching clinics, I think the biggest thing that it does, it makes you think and go, Hey, is this what I want to do or do I want to keep doing it the way that, you know, we have done it? I think that's the biggest thing is just makes you think. hundred percent. And I think that's a big part of coach education of, you know, you go to clinics and you learn something with every speaker, whether that's, that's what I want to do, or that's something that I don't want to do. And I think that, that that's something that everybody learns because it goes back to, we can do everything or we can do anything, but we don't want to do everything. But uh, Coach Godwin, I appreciate your time today, and man, I I am learning a ton as as we're speaking and and talking, and I hope that this relationship continues, and I can bounce ideas off of you. But if there are some listeners who want to get in touch with you, just about anything as far as you, what you talked about today, whether that's the culture that you're building and the acronym and how you went about that, or, or just anything in general, where would you send them online in case they wanted to get in touch? I would say email me and just mention the podcast. Uh, my email address is godwinc14 at ecu.edu. 
Um, and, and obviously, yeah, but anytime you have like a question, it's just easier for me to respond in an email. Um, so, and then if, you know, you need something else, I'll give you my cell phone once uh, you email me and uh, we'll go from there. I'm all for helping anybody in our profession and just really helping anybody in life just because uh, people have helped me along the way. I wouldn't be where I am today without a lot of help from a lot of different people. Definitely. I love that. And is there any, I'm, I'm going to open up the mic for you. Is there anything else that you'd like to tell our listeners before you go? Go Pirates. Thank you for listening to Ahead of the Curve. You can subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, which can include Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, or YouTube. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please share it on social media to help get the word out. Once again, thank you for joining us.